I would do a big party with Michael Douglas at the Cannes Film Festival every year. And when I was living with Sharon Stone, we started to do the Cancer Benefit, his restaurant, the really big profile one. And um, when the festival would end, I hired a bus from Team Porsche. Mr. Verger was a big Formula One guy. A lot of his friends, Formula One drivers. Mr. Verger would invite five people. I would invite five people. And the 10 of us would go on a trip that Mr. Verger planned to. One trip was to Burgundy. One trip was to Bordeaux. One trip was to Hungary for the Tokai Vineyard. One trip was uh, Napa Valley. And we would have people like um, Cesar, the great sculptor, um, the, the Academy Awards in Paris are called the Cesar Award. We'd have um, one or two Formula One race car champions with us, a couple of chefs, a couple of rock and roll stars, Sammy Hagar. And we'd all go out for 10 days and drink and eat. Mr. Roger would be our guide. I'm absolutely beside myself with excitement about this week's guest, the legendary talent manager, Shep Gordon, an all-round great human adored by celebrities across the world. So much so, the famous Mike Myers of Wayne's World and Austin Powers directed a film about him, Supermensch, The Life and Times of Shep Gordon. If you haven't seen the film, you absolutely have to see it. It's hilarious, it's funny, and it's very relevant to now. For a man so connected, he is the most humble, appreciative, wise, and spiritual person that I've ever met, and I'm honored to be able to call him a friend. During today's show, we cover so many topics. We learn how hospitality is his passion, cooking is his meditation, and hosting culinary jam sessions at his home in Maui is a regular occurrence. He talks about his humbling experience working with the Dalai Lama for over 12 years. Yes, the Dalai Lama. And how if being Alice Cooper's manager, along with many other famous artists, wasn't enough, he is the man that I believe single-handedly is responsible for creating the celebrity chefs. So why did he do this? Well, having been a close friend and then manager for the iconic French chef Roger Verger, who is now passed, he became angered by the indifference he saw firsthand in the way chefs versus rock stars were being treated. And after a conversation with the famous Wolfgang Puck, he was called to go down to Spargo for lunch. Now, Spargo is the amazing restaurant by Wolfgang Puck in LA, very famous, where he was met by 100 of the world's greatest chefs holding a sign saying, help. From that point on, he made it his mission to stop chefs being seen as just staff, but to bring them out of the kitchen and give us not only a platform to show off the creativity and to be recognized for their skill, but to receive the status and financial reward they deserve. So we go on to discuss the evolution of the culinary arts, the role TV has played in the rise of the celebrity chef, and the way it's changed over the last few years, for good and for bad. We discuss the impact of the Me Too movement in the industry, and with the current COVID situation that we're all facing, he shares his thoughts on where he sees opportunity to pivot for chefs and restaurateurs moving forward. I gotta tell you, this is one of the most fascinating, wide-ranging discussions I have ever had. Strap yourself in, belt yourself up, let's get ready, we're rock and rolling, sit back and enjoy it. Well everyone, uh, welcome Shep Gordon, my friend. Uh, I haven't seen you in a very, very long time. It's been uh, it's been a few years since we sat next to each other and had something to eat and thanks for making the time to come on the new show, The Raw Hospitality Show. Great, nice to see you again. You're, shoot- you're shooting- Which was over a dinner table, but- Absolutely. 
Yeah, I mean, well, speaking of the dinner table, that's actually how we actually met. It was really interesting. Um, you know, I was writing a bunch of stuff on our relationship, and it's been mostly via into the internet because um, we sort of miss each other when you're in LA or in in parts of New York. And I remember uh, the movie came out, and one of my friends had met you and said, "This guy's like." A legend, and I was like, oh, I'd really love to meet him. And I messaged you and said, I'm going surfing in Kauai. I know you live in Maui. It'd be right, great to come, you know, catch up one day. And you literally, in ten minutes, just responded and was like, Hey, let's cook together. Let's do something. And I was like, What? Okay. So I rediverted my flights to Maui, and then, you know, beknownst to me, then we were sitting next to each other. So I wanted to uh, say thanks for coming on. I wanted to say congratulations. You're a new father. So yeah. how how old? Um, five months yesterday. And a great name, of course. <laughs> uh, Benjamin Gordon. Show that. Is it Robert? Uh, Benjamin Robert Gordon. Benjamin Robert Gordon. Oh. There's a papa. Oh, that's amazing. How does it feel? Uh, it feels amazing. Yeah, really remarkable. Oh, man. And, and sleeping well and everything's good in the home set? Uh, almost like a Disney baby. Because <laughs> you were basically the baby was coming when we were in lockdown, right? And you were in LA. Yeah, I had to go to. LA. I, I didn't have to, but I I live in Maui, and the hospital got compromised here, so we went to LA. Understand? Look, I wanted to talk about um, to the listeners how we met, and uh, what was really funny to me was that you know there I am off surfing on the way to Kauai, and, I, and a friend of mine had met you and said, "I met this really really interesting guy." And I was like, oh, that's nice. And he goes, no, no, you got to meet this guy. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, sure, sure. And I think it was the it was 2013, late 2013, the movie Mike Myers did his directorial debut on The Life and Times of You, and the movie came out. And I'd already emailed you and hadn't seen the movie and, and known about it. And I emailed you, and I, I just said, you know, he said, you've got to connect with this guy. He really is Mr. The, the, Mr. Hospitality. And I was like, is this a hospitality guy? And I emailed you and 10 minutes later, you said, yeah, I'd love to connect. And I'm like, well, I could be in Maui. And you're like, sure. We, you know, I'm, and I think we conversed a little bit. And then all of a sudden, I found myself sitting at a dinner table with you. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, you know, it's, um, it's a small island. And um, it's such a different experience if you just come here and you don't know anybody. Yeah. Um, so I've always felt that's sort of one of my, uh, obligations for being lucky enough to have lived here so long yeah. is to try and show the real Aloha side of, of Maui. What makes it, you know, every place does trees and water and birds and, uh, herbs growing, but it, it's really the people of Hawaii that make the difference. How long have you, how long have you lived there now? I've been here 46 years. Wow. The same house. Same house and the same and the same design of the house as well. You've never really changed. You've yeah. kept, kept it in great form. I wanted to ask you. So, you know, we're thinking one night be great to do a q and A Q&A at the Neuhaus Group, which is where I'm um, in the studio now, and and maybe uh, segue into the movie because I've been sending it around to a lot of people and they've seen it again. And I still I watched it the other night again. Just for historical purposes, I think I've seen it about six or seven times, and I just pissed myself laughing, and it's still relevant to this day. So I was really – so can you explain to me, before we talk about the movie, why are you so passionate about hospitality and cooking? Because I read somewhere that's basically your version of meditation. Is is that right? Yeah, I think that cooking is sort of 
um, has become sort of my meditation. Yeah. Uh, I, I, don't, I can't really tell you why. I mean, service has always been something I've been drawn towards. Um, and then in my middle years of my life, I had a mentor who was a chef. And I didn't really know a lot about cooking. And, and by association with him, cooking was part of the language that I needed to learn to really learn what I wanted to learn from this beautiful human. And um, once I started cooking, I realized, and, um, wow, this is really what I want to do. It relaxes me. It um, really gets to the heart of service. Um, it's exciting. And it's sort of like what I do for a living, which is, you know, produce events for artists. But it's, it's so much like a, in the Buddhist tradition, there's a mandala. They make a sand mandala. And monks will spend two weeks making this beautiful sand mandala. Wow. And as soon as it's finished, they walk it to a body of water and dump it in. And it, it's over. And it teaches you about impermanence. So for me, when I do like an Alice Cooper show, that lasts for life. When I cook pot roast like I did last night, when it's over, it's over. <laughs> it's so amazing because, you know, I actually remember the reason I was – once I saw the movie um, and I was coming to see you, what I was really blown away by was that Roger Verge's book, it was 1986, if I remember correctly, it was released called Vegetables. And I was young – and I was kind of starting out wet behind the ears in the industry, and it was the first time, even coming from a Mediterranean family, but it was the first time that a, a global chef went, hey, we're just going to do something with endive, or in they call it chicory in the US. And I started to read through that book, and then when I watched the movie and looked at your relationship you had with him, I'm like, I've really got to meet this guy. Like, you know, And I think that's when you and I discovered the love for chicken cacciatore, right? Which I don't think we ended up cooking, but but I still remember that. And I, and I had this dream of you said, come over to the house and I've got a wood-fired oven and we'll choose chicken cacciatore. And I'm like, who is this guy? This is awesome. He doesn't know who I am. Just idiot Australian. And, and I was so excited. And I think you had a plumbing issue or a leak. And then we went to one of your restaurants and used their kitchen. And you were hilarious, though, because you – what I've discovered from you is that you're probably one of the most public-private people, right, uh, that I've ever met. You know, pe people may think they know you, but you humbly rang me the day before, and I tell this story to a lot of people, and you said, hey, you know, I know we're four or five, um, you know, and I'd met your family and so forth, and he, you were like, look, Alice is in town, Alice Cooper's in town with his wife, do you mind if he comes for, you know, a couple of extra, and this was like driving, and I'm like, you know, well, no, no, you definitely can't have him, and I think somebody else was coming in that period, and I had this incredible dinner, that, why, what is it about you that opens your door to anyone and treats people like that? I'm, I, you know, just the way I am, I guess, it's funny, I made, um, I made uh, my in-laws are out here, and um, I made um, pot roast last night, brisket. Yeah, and I told this to my grandmother who I made you know enough brisket for fifteen people. There were five of us. Yeah, I uh, said so my grandmother. I always say to my grandmother, "Why do you make so much food?" And she say, "You never know when a bus full of hungry people is going to pull up to your door." That's amazing. It's so true, right? My my father was renowned for that. You know, I could overcook, and my father was renowned to bring people. My, he used to. My mother always used to cook extra food because he'd always bring home some derelict that he found at work, or some guy that was on his own, or something like that. But 
when we cooked together, we I think you did a soup and I I stupidly was like, I'm going to do this crab dish. And you're like, sure. And then I realized I rang one of my friends and was like, you got to help me get some crab. And some reason as an Australian, I thought you'd be swarming with crabs in Maui and you're not. Not at all. Yeah. No. And, we and so we're warm water. So there's no, you know, we get a lobster. We get a spiny lobster. We have shrimp farms, but not, none of those fish are indigenous to here. And you'd think I'd know better as a chef. And, and I remember, I remember you, you, you uh, looked after me, the Marriott looked after me and they rang me and they said, there's two boxes in our uh, reception for you and something's moving inside. <laughs> I think I shipped them from the other side of the world. It certainly cost it like it did. We had a really beautiful dinner. That's the beauty of, it, of, uh, of Maui and the house. It's small enough that um, almost anybody connected in one way or another to the culinary world or the music world um, has somebody in their Rolodex who's been to Maui who knows me. Sure. And I look at my place sort of like um, a jam session for musicians, but it's culinary jam session. Yeah. So as soon as anybody, you know, if a, if a sommelier calls up, great, you're on the wine. Um, if a chef like you shows up, let's make a meal. Yeah. Well, let's jam. Have a good time. I'm sure I probably invited a chef or two over that night. Maybe yeah. Peter Merriman, Mark Elman or somebody. But um and and it really breaks it all down, you know, then it becomes a real then you really see Maui when you cook with somebody. Absolutely. And and you know, it was a do you ever get in imposter syndrome? Because I don't I can't imagine you haven't you've met everyone. I mean, you had the Dalai Lama crash at your place and you know, I was sitting there that night with you and I had Alice Cooper next to me and his, and his amazing wife and he was talking about golf. And, and then I remember he had a couple of plates of the, the food I ate so that he, I, I sort of figured, okay, well, at least he's not pretending to like it. And then he was just so beautiful and he just turned and he said, hey, listen, I've got to go a little earlier because it's date night with my wife and this is what we do. And I'm sitting there pinching myself going, these people are just extraordinary. This is like the most incredible so I've always wanted to f- see you again in the city and cook for you properly, you know, one day in my restaurant or something like that. It, it, do you ever get imposter syndrome? What, I don't know what that means. So when you, when you sort of sit there with someone and you pinch yourself and you feel like, how did I get here? Should I be here? All the time. Really? But I, you know, I, think, um, I think everybody has self-worth issues of one way or another. Um, so I think, you know, I, I don't know anybody when you get, you know, who, um, when you get that, every, everyone has heroes. Sure. And you're with your heroes. I, I, I don't think I've ever met anyone. I mean, maybe I have, but it's usually a, it's someone living in, uh, in an unhappy state of affairs who yeah. thinks they're worthy of, of all, of all those kind of things. But, you know, you've had, you. I mean, from, you know, Luther Vandross to Jimi Hendrix to Emeril Lagasse to Wolfgang Puck, I mean, you've been with some really big names and you still and you still feel like that sometimes? I I cooked for His Holiness in, in, um, on the Big Island for four days. I cooked in Trinidad. I flew with him to Trinidad. I served on the, on the I did serve, my term ran up, but I served on the, his only board that he sits on Tibet fund. And uh, over the span of those 12 or 15 years. Wow. I produced events with him in, in Buffalo. I produced events with him in Maui. 
over those 12 or 15 years, I would questions would pop in my mind that I would want to ask him about. Yeah. I would, then I would get in his presence, and the only thing I ever in 12 years that really ever able to say to him was thank you. So you had all these, you have all these picture perfect questions. You're like, I'm going to ask him this, and I'm going to ask him that, and then he was there, and you just basically crapped yourself and went, I'm just going to say thank you very much. <laughs> all, all we come out was thank you, just thank yeah. you, thank you, letting me be in your presence. How did um? I want to come. When I met Groucho, I was 20 years old, and I used to come back and. The rings under my arms were so wet I could wring out my shirt. I sweated so much every every time I was with them. It was like, God. <laughs> I want to come back to your holiness um, at the end of the show because I want to talk to you about spirituality and 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 hospitality people. But was Roger Verger pretty much transformational for you in regards to influence in food? What he did is he reinforced for me that there was a path to success and happiness. I had really only seen success and um, and abuse, self-abuse. Um, you know, the success, they were all, everybody was, knees were jumping up and down in Hollywood, sweaty foreheads, cigarette chain smoking, yeah. cocaine going those, um, new, new, new Bentley, bigger house, phonier tits. Um, nobody happy, nobody saying, wow, am I lucky? Um, but they had success. And then when I met Mr. Verger, he, he was happy yeah, and he was successful. And I said, that's who I want to be. I want to be successful and happy. How do I do that? And, um, he let me sort of just hang in his presence. You, you spent a bit of time with him traveling as well, right? Yeah, I spent a lot of time. I got very lucky. Um, Mr. Verger was married. Wife didn't really travel. She raised the children. He spent a lot of time traveling. And he was lonely. So, you know, I was a good buddy for him. And I enjoyed the good life. So, And I appreciated him. So we ended up, our rhythm was basically, I would do a big party with Michael Douglas at the Cannes Film Festival every year. Yeah. And when I was living with Sharon Stone, we started to do the cancer benefit, uh-huh. his restaurant on the really big profile one. Yep. Uh, and um, when the festival would end, I hired um, a bus from Team Porsche. Mr. Verger was a big Formula One guy. Yeah. A lot of his friends, Formula One drivers. And... Um, Mr. Verger would invite five people. I would invite five people. And the 10 of us would go on a trip that Mr. Verger planned to. One trip was to Burgundy. One trip was to Bordeaux. One trip was to Hungary for the Tokai Vineyard. One trip was uh, Napa Valley. Um, and we would have people like um, Cesar, the great sculptor. Um, the, the Academy Awards in Paris are called the Cesar Award. Yep. We'd have um, one or two Formula One race car champions with us, a couple of chefs, a couple of rock and roll stars, Sammy Hagar. And we'd all go out for 10 days and drink and eat. Mr. Roger would be our guide. He'd go, uh, oh, look at that farm. We'd be driving on a bus and he'd go, uh, oh, chef, do you see that farmhouse? And I'd say, yes, Mr. Roger. He said, you know, 
I bet they make very nice cheese. And you go in the fridge and you take out the cheese. Then he'd show me a picture of the farmer. He wow. said, oh, yeah, just so happened to have the cheese from his farm. Uh, he's going to join us for lunch later. Wow. So, yeah. you, you, that's another world, right? And so somebody's so well-known because – for the younger listeners, he passed away at 86 many years ago. And for me, I you know, was cooking at 14. He was my hero. And we didn't have the internet, so we didn't have that connectivity. So I only learn about his life through books. You know, I mean, young people now don't realize that you know, we have to actually read and find stuff. You can't get them online. And what's amazing is you brought up in, in, the, in the documentary, and I know we talked about this once before, was that we were kind of these – you know, giant ego chefs hidden in the background and never really celebrated outside of France, not really celebrated outside the kitchen. I know that that was one of the segues into you understanding how to value that person. And and I still believe to this day, you're probably the pioneer on getting chefs um, um, to be on television and celebrated in a bit more, whether it's good or bad, we can, it can, it can be indifferent, but really when people talk about celebrityism in chefs and they're like, oh, I don't believe in all that. And I'm like, well, you know, I, I think in a good way, at least they're talking about food. At least they're talking about nourishment, whether it's, you know, kitchen nightmares with Gordon Ramsay or whatever. And maybe there's, there's got to be a storyline. Did What made you and compelled you to basically go, I want to manage chefs. <laughs> like, I mean, we're ego, maniac, crazy ride, theme parks in our head kind of people. And, you know, we get stressed out about a brown piece of broccoli and the life's going to end. What made you think that that was going to be fun or a good idea? You know, it was, it was a combination of stuff. It started with anger, which is very rare in my life. Um, that I do anything out of anger. I'm really good at not doing things out of anger. Right. But after after probably 10 years with Mr. Berger, um, a lot of the traveling for him was not any really any different than Alice. Yeah. I would go with Mr. Berger and he'd go to L.A. and go cook at Spago. We go over to the restaurant in the afternoon. We do a run through with the, the wait staff and the chefs, just like Alice, would go to play the form and he'd go in the afternoon and do a sound check and a production check. Mr. Vergé would go back home, take a nap. Alice would go back home, take a nap. Mr. Vergé would get to the restaurant. He'd change into his uniform. Alice would get to the hall, change into his uniform. Um, Mr. Vergé would go out and greet his audience who we present some of his hit dishes and some new dishes. Have to constantly change it, but you can't leave out the things that people love, um, like his zucchini flour. You had to have the zucchini flour on the menu. Alice had to do his hits, but he had to write new hits. Um, and then there'd be a line afterwards for a meet and greet with Alice and a line for a meet and greet with Mr. Verge. Wasn't really that difference. The difference was Alice got paid. Mr. Verge didn't get paid. But I never really knew the inner workings. I, he would put on his whites. I would put on a suit and tie and go into the audience yeah. and be sitting at a table where the meal would be presented. So after maybe 10 years of doing this with him, I said, you know, Mr. Berger, I'm really uncomfortable in the front of the house. I'm a back of the house kind of guy. Can I be your tour manager? Let me, I'll check you into the hotel. Let me get your money. And, uh, you know, no, no, chef, there's no money. I said, what do you need? What, what, there's what? Oh, no, no, I don't get paid. Wait a second. 
we went to this thing, the million dollar opening of Stouffer's. I saw the the invitation. They spent a million dollars on an opening party for their good customers. They talked about you didn't get paid. Yeah, it's so common. You were the star. So I, I went from place to place. I finally got the last uh, event we did. Um, I'll, I won't mention the place, but um, it did a very aggressive Masters of Cuisine program. They were really leaders in the country. And it was a hotel with a fine restaurant. And for $2,500, you got to spend the weekend with these master chefs. Um, Mr. Berger, Bocuse, um, Alice Waters. It was a very sophisticated program. And, um, we got up and I went to check him in his room and they asked for a credit card. And a, but every other place had, and I was, wow, that's weird. And then we, we get to the room and it's next to a garbage dump. It smells. So I gave him my room. We go, we do the dinner, it's sold out. He does his lunch, he does his thing. And then I notice on the, on the, uh, on the, on the advertising at the place that the next night, Roy Yamaguchi is cooking at the restaurant. And I had never been able to get Mr. Vijay to come to Hawaii. Right. And I really wanted him to come to Hawaii. And I knew if he tasted Roy's food, he would come to Hawaii. There would be an ingredient in the food that he never tasted before that would get him on an airplane. <laughs> How French of him. Please stay one extra day for me. You got to try his food. But we did. And we go walking up to the restaurant, both in suit and ties, and the maitre d' who I now knew because Mr. Berger had cooked there the last three nights. Yep. Pulled me over in the corner. He said, I am so sorry, Mr. Gordon. The owners have a policy here. The help can't eat in the dining room, but I can serve Mr. Berger in the bar. And he's got a Medal of Honor on his lapel. He's a French Medal of Honor winner. He's just worked for them for free where they've raised a quarter of a million dollars. They sold out. So I said to him, I said, how do you define help? By, by not paying someone? Is that your definition of help? And I got into, I got really heated. Yeah. And then I got on the airplane. He went to France. I went, I was going to an event on the Big Island with Kenny Loggins. And when I got there, Wolfgang was there. And, um, hey, Wolf, what are you doing? He said, oh, I'm cooking at Kenny's thing. And remember, you got me the gigs like last <laughs> And I said, oh, shit, yeah, that's right. I remember we were for dinner there, and Kenny was with us and said, and said wow. He said, yeah, what a, what a nightmare. I wonder what happened. I said, um, well, first they told me it was first class. When I got to the airport, it wasn't first class. It was coach. But two days before I came, they called me up and said they couldn't get my ingredients. Could I bring it with me? So I have 150 pounds worth of food on the airplane with me. I'm in coach. I get to the airport. There's nobody to meet me. I call up the executive chef, and he says, we're really busy. Put it in a cab. Wow. I put it in a cab. I get to the hotel. They don't have refrigeration for me. They make me walk it a mile on a rack to the hotel next door to get refrigeration. And then I pay them. And I said, this is what happened to me with Roger. And I get back to L.A. maybe three days later, and Wolf calls me up on, on the weekend and says, can you come over to Spago for lunch? And I went, and there were a hundred of the world's greatest chefs in the room with a big sign that said "Help." <laughs> yeah, I, I remember that. That's amazing, right? You know what's really interesting is that 
I think my brother was around that era, uh, probably a little younger, so he's like 67 now, and he was considered the best Italian chef in Australia at that point. And we had a bunch of accolades, like three stars for the restaurant, and it was Italian. And I remember cooking with him. I did probably close to over 100 events with him, and we never once got paid. And, and, and we never really knew any better. We, we, we kind of just went there. We brought all our own ingredients. And, you know, sometimes they would pay for the flight. And if they did, they wouldn't pay for the cab or the hotel. And it, it might sound precious to some people, but, you know, when you're working in your operation, as you know, 70, 80 hours a week, and now you're going to do this event, there's no real fun in it. It's not like a, you know. Uh, a- Middle East. Right, and then you're and then you're also working in a foreign kitchen. You don't know the team. They don't usually give you great people. And um, I would say, in those days, they really resented you coming into that kitchen. Absolutely, I can remember the first paying engagement I got for the chefs. So what I said to them was, "Just don't say yes to anybody. You can tell them to call me." Yeah, because uh, what they would do is they'd say, "Oh, Wolf, and you know Nobu's doing it, and Dean Fearing's doing it." Wookie. Sorry, Wookie. Yeah. Fearings, you got to do it. So then you think you have to do it. But I remember my first was um, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I got Dean Fearing $15,000 to do the dinner at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Wow. And um, it was at the Century City Hotel. It was 1,500 people. It was a year Bruce Springsteen, I think, got inducted. And it was my first first time I booked a chef. What what year was that? 92. So $15,000 in 1992 is probably equivalent to like half a million dollars now, relatively speaking, right? 15000 bucks. I don't remember anybody paying me that ever. No, I got, I got a lot of money for the guys. It was amazing how much value there was in them. Um, but... Uh, so, so I'm really excited. Seeing Dean's face, so he came out. I said, we got to go to do pre-production, come out a day early or two days early. I'll alert the hotel. Um, he came out two days early. Rehearsals were going on, so we went in and Springsteen was up on stage. There was people. Dean was like overwhelmed because he's a yeah. guitar player. Too. And we go into the kitchen, the executive chef, and I'm, I'm really bubbly and happy. I think this is fantastic. You kidding? Yeah, we're bringing Fury to your hotel that you can cook with them. What a great thing! And I go through my how exciting this is, and how happy the guests are going to be. And I know you guys do a fantastic job, but one and one can be three, and blah blah blah. And um, the executive chefs, I'm so uh, Chef Fury. I'm really happy you're here. He said, I I uh, I am so happy that we can be helpful too. I'll have the staff here uh, at nine o'clock tomorrow for you. We show up at nine o'clock in the morning. It's one dishwasher. No. For a meal for 1,500 people. No. I get the executive chef in and he says, Chef, could you wait outside for a second? He goes, Shut the door. And he says to me, I don't know who the fuck you think you are, but I don't need any fucking young kids from Texas coming to cook. Wow. Cook in my kitchen. I am going to make sure you fail so fucking hard. That you never bring anybody back into my kitchen. Remember my face, buddy. <laughs> what did you say? I said thank you, and I walked outside and I called uh, all the chefs in LA, Michelle Richard, well everybody, and got everybody down to the kitchen. 
I think I had 35 guys cooking in the kitchen. <laughs> oh, my God. I, I, wow. I can't believe he said that. That was they didn't want they didn't want anybody in their kitchen. I mean, when when I saw it, it was in '92. There were food fairs all across the country. Wookie, please. Taste of L.A., taste of Chicago, taste. Nobody ever was given a stove. There were no stoves at the outdoor events. No one had ever had a stove at a cooking event outdoors. Yeah. And they had all the great chefs there presenting their food. It would be like Alice performing without lights. Yeah. Um, it's un- it-, it was really anger that drove me. And that's really interesting because you've got some really uh, pretty amazing relationships. How many of – I want to ask you a, a funny question, though. When Supermensch came out, how many people contacted you to be managed by them? How many chefs? Still every day. <laughs> you probably were suspicious about me. I actually just wanted to hang out with you. I was like, this guy's like awesome. You know. For me, it was really easy because I never took a chef on after the first day. That was my rule. I said, I'll do it because um, I'm really angry and I want Mr. Verger to be respected. Yeah. But I don't want it. I said, it's going to cost. I did it all pro bono. Nobody was making any money. Yeah. I said, really don't want to get into this. So I'm just drawing a line. If you're here in the room, there was only one guy I asked him for permission to get a line cook at Commander's Palace who turned out to be Emeril Lagasse. Yeah, wow. Um, I said, I, I want one, uh, one other guy in. And they had heard him from Commander's Palace. Yeah. And that was it. So I never signed anyone after that moment. Um. But you kind of, you know, I was looking at the chefs that you've actually spent time with. You also, not just that fact that they're incredibly successful, but somebody like Emeril, for example, and Roger, you also uh, choose chefs that have temperaments like you because it's such an ego game, right? And everybody's angry about something and chefs are, you know, like, you know, we talk about that, you know, one of my comedian friends says you stand in front of a crowd of 5,000 people. I'm, I'm The only one I'm worried about is the one that's, the person that's sitting there with their arms crossed like this and not laughing. And it's kind of like with chefs, we get stressed out because we can have a fantastic service. And then there's just that one customer that sends something back that wasn't done well. And you own that night all with that person. And I I just, I'm interested in the temperament of the people. Have you ever, like, for example, like Gordon Ramsay, I didn't know at all. And I cooked for him in Australia and he left a message on my phone and years later, and he said, oh, look, we've been asked, 10 of the top world's top chefs have been asked to choose 10 of their favorite chefs in the world. Um, and I've just had a meal that stood out in, in my memory for years. And I was like, and I honestly thought it was one of my idiot friends pretending to be Gordon Ramsay. And I was like, so I just, I was like, I'll get back to them later. I actually didn't think it was real. And then his assistant emails me, and says, hey, did you get the message from Gordon? And I was like, holy crap. And because obviously his reputation was built on aggression, uh, is no hiding that, Boiling Point from London, that show, and, you know, Hell's Kitchen. Then all of a sudden he said, well, I'm going to be back in Australia in six weeks. Um, you know, let's hang out. And I'm like, okay, this is awesome. And they did this great book, uh, Fandom House did 10, 10 great world great chefs choose their favorite 10 chefs. So we did this beautiful thing and I was really honored because, you know, and it wasn't that long ago. It was like 2009, 2010. Um, and then he came to the country and we uh, ended up at a dinner and he was like completely the opposite. And I felt like he was not only a great chef, possibly a great actor. I think some of it's real, but 
he was this completely different human being, like nothing like he was on television. People, do you, how do you feel about the? Um, I'm not going to try and get divisive, but how do you feel about the? You know, the aggressional, you know, aggression that's on these shows because I'm anti it um, because I think there's a lot of pain there and, and its kitchens are already hard enough. What's your thoughts on that? You know, I think it's um, commerce sometimes can be unfortunate. You make choices as humans. Um, I, I, in the evolution of, of both humans and the culinary arts, yeah. Food Channel was really the leader. Um, and they brought in a lot of television people who didn't have passion for food. Yeah. And what they did is they looked at the horizon and on the horizon, you could see that TV ratings of shows that had winners and losers. Right. Were rise. Right. So they started to take the culinary arts and make them a vehicle for winners and losers, which has nothing to do with the essence and the soul of culinary arts. It's about service. Yeah. So. Guys like Gordon, who I understand are really nice people. Yeah. Um, for some, for the reason of ratings. Yeah. Makes choice of having winners and losers with the culinary arts as the magnet to to have winners and losers. The important part is the winners and losers, not if the rest, not if the dish works or not. And that's that, that's the the emphasis of the show. You actually don't often the foods the the not in the not the center and and front and center and and uh, you know it's it, so let me ask you. I I opened my restaurant uh, two years ago. Perfect timing to open a restaurant in New York just yeah. before a just before an uprising. Um, the Me Too movement, you know, came over New York City and and most of America through Harvey Weinstein and Mario Batali and a whole bunch of those people. It was really weird for me to think that that stuff still went on. I mean, when I had my restaurants in Australia, I had six places and uh, five, six places. And, you know, with hundreds of staff, majority of my venues were run by women and not because they were women, they were just really good at their job. So, so then naturally the harassment side, we were very strict on our policies, but we didn't feel like we had a culture that we had to worry that much. And we didn't, we never had an issue. But when I got to New York, I was shocked to feel like we were kind of back in the 70s and 80s and some of the stuff that went on do you feel like i mean i know it needed to happen and be exposed do you think it's going to get better i hope so yeah i i think a lot of it has to do with the election yeah um i think um you know if, if it i think if it, if it goes one way i think we have a court now that um fosters all those types of things Sure. And I think we have a, uh, I don't want to get political. Yeah. But um, just last week was the Rudy Giuliani piece was a good representative of, sure. of what they think America should look like. And I don't think one person faulted him for what was seen on that documentary. Of, You're talking about Sasha Cohen's uh, Borat sequel. Yeah. Yeah. So that was just an accepted... Um, by the supporters of Giuliani, sure, that, that's accepted behavior. It, it's not so. So what? what so yeah, really. Action, that, there hasn't been one reaction. Um, so, so I think if the Giuliani world gets in power, that really is the norm. Yeah, and I, 
I think whether women lose the right to their abortions, whether they lose the right to health insurance, that's alongside losing the right to dignity. I, I 100% agree because what Sasha Baron Cohen said for the listeners that haven't watched Borat's sequel, and there was a kind of setup of Giuliani um, acting, and I'll leave it to the people to watch it. Sasha Baron Cohen said, well, the problem is that not that he didn't think it was anything was wrong with it. It was that fact that he didn't think anything was wrong with it. He said it twice, and I remember saying, he goes, it, he thought that that behavior was acceptable was the whole point. Um, and, and it's kind of interesting, and I don't, I'm not on any political sides for that, particularly being Australian. I'd, my opinion won't have value on that. We've got enough nutty uh, people running our country as well. Um, but, you know, the Me Too movement, I don't want to stay too dark on that. I think it had to get bad in order to – and it destroyed a lot of people's lives – and I'm not talking about the ones that got found out. I'm talking about the people under them that didn't even speak up because, you know, some people go, oh, yeah, but you've destroyed someone's career. And I'm like, imagine the mental trauma. I had trauma. I remember I had uh, uh, therapy once thinking, I'm going to try this therapy thing out, right? And I tried it out and I was like, I'm in really, you know, and then they start digging around the corners and, and I realized that I was in abusive drug-fueled kitchens. I was basically... And, you know, in, in that environment, Bourdain wrote about it quite a lot. And I said, you know, I said this recently on a, on a, a town hall with a bunch of chefs. I was like, there is nothing sexy about my era in the kitchen. There's nothing. Everybody wants to make it rock and roll, but actually it was quite divisive. And I think things are getting better. And I think that behavior is unacceptable now and hopefully in the future. So tell me, um, do you still stay in contact with everyone like Emerald and, and Wolfgang and, and so forth? Yeah, I wouldn't say everyone. I stay very friendly with uh, a lot of them. Uh, Emerald Wolf comes out. He has a restaurant next door to my house, so we usually do Thanksgiving together. Yep. Charlie Palmer got married here. Wow. Had a lot, usually Thanksgiving. Um, yeah, a lot of uh, Celestino Drago comes out a bit. Dean comes out a lot. Um, so, yeah, I... I you know, it's my passion, and it's really fun to come out. We all get in the kitchen. So, so do you think? Do you think not to segue back, but do you think the whole where the celebrity chef movement has gone? I, I'm I'm weird. Like, I don't really watch a lot of cooking shows, but when I do, I like the really old ones. When some of the kids probably won't know Keith Floyd. Um, you remember Englishman Keith Floyd, and he was pretty much drunk the entire show. All the early ones drunk. And he never really, yeah, and he never really cooked that well. I mean, he was a really nice guy and he never really cooked that well. And the editing was funny because he would be in somewhere windy and they couldn't fight, quite figure it out and everything was sort of thrown together. And he's have this massive wine glass. And I always remember the wine was always to the top of the glass. And then they would they would edit down to the very next scene, which him going, now we're going to start cooking. And the wine's gone right down to there. <laughs> and it just used to look at the end. He goes, look at that. That's delicious. But I mean, you know. The celebrity shows now, like the, the chef shows, I, I, I don't believe everything was good in the past, but I think some of it's really deep and I love the international stuff. Where do you, what do you, what's your reaction to the, what's happening? Things change. I think the word celebrity has really changed in the last 10 or 15 years. Um, I think that I, I used the word because it was, you could see the moment where celebrity was becoming the most important word in our language. But I think the real difference is that up until 10, 15 years ago, celebrity came out of remarkable talent in something. 
So you became the celebrity skin doctor because you were the best skin doctor. Understand. You became the celebrity chef because you were Mr. Verger. Sure. You became, once the Paris Hilton, Kim Kardashian wave happened, where you became a celebrity because you were a celebrity. Yep. Happened to maybe make makeup or who happened to. That infiltrated the culinary arts really fast, like every other art form. Of course. So celebrity chefs now are celebrity chefs, not because they're good cooks. They may not even know how to cook. They're celebrity chefs because they're celebrities. It's, it's really... It, it, it's a really interesting thing because MasterChef, when I was in Australia, dominated Australia. And I remember they asked me to do a, uh, uh, a screening for the judge position. The three judges on that show lasted a while. And I said, no. And they were quite surprised. And I said, I'm not, I really don't have any love for being famous. I can't imagine how any of that's good. Um, and then I remember years later, they, they bring chefs on and I still didn't go on. And and I ha- I was on this radio show and I got challenged by a couple of people saying, so you two, is your ego too big to go on television on this show? And I said, no. I said, my job's to get you to go out to dinner, not stay home and cook, right? And that's how I felt about it. I was like, I'm a technician. Like I didn't want to be recognized other than by my friends in their restaurant to get a good table. So, so- Tell me about some of the people that you're you're um, you're fascinated by now that are doing some great stuff in the culinary world because we're going to get into COVID in a second. But who who out pre COVID some chefs that aren't from the past that are kind of present now that you think are quite special and doing something interesting? You know, I haven't really. Um, I mean, the big the big waves that have come sous vide's become very big since I was at it. That didn't exist then. Sure, I haven't explored it um i haven't really moved on to the new wave there's a couple of guys um spike out of washington i mean out of washington dc sure um, who's doing the uh, plant-based stuff for beyond burgers really good um but i i don't travel that much outside of maui i here we have a really good crew of chefs um i like the the um Roy Choi turned me on to Korean food. For me, yeah. I think it's more new ethnic turns than um, exciting new chefs yeah. doing the same foods differently, only because they're not there and exposed to it. Yeah, I agree with you. And I think that the, the exposure of other continents, like, you know, from Colombia and through to, you know, uh, you know, Nepal now, you know, you've got food from Lima, you know, so people are starting to translate. Yeah. You still... Do you, so you've got you've got your favorites. I want to ask you something about COVID. So has anybody reached out to you? Um, I rem- I remember the story that, I mean, the whole movie Supermensch came out from, I guess, your relationship with Mike Myers. As far as I understand it, he comes to stay with you for a couple of days, stays for a few months, realizes you're actually a pretty awesome human being, and you've obviously told him some stuff that you did. And ta-da, there's this moment of clarity for him to go, I've got to tell this story. Since COVID, there's been a lot of trauma. Um, there's a lot of you know closures. There's a lot of people losing their livelihoods. Uh, restaurants have never been affected like this ever, um, and it's probably going to get worse before it gets better. Have you had to deal with any sort of advisory levels for people in the in the industry? Yeah, you know, I've been. I spent a lot of time, like everybody else did at the beginning of it, uh, realizing that this wasn't going away for a while, and how to. How do musical artists, how do culinary 
part is find the new highway to their audience that they can monetize. Yeah. Um, and in the music world, it's been very difficult. In the culinary world, I think it's really exciting. Um, depressing on one hand, because for the infrastructure of restaurants, it's really hard for me to see brick and mortar coming back the way it was for quite a while. Sure. I think brick and mortar is going to be a, like it was before the celebrity chef experience, an occasion driven event. Right. It's a birthday, it's a wedding, it's a um, more so than it's your way of life. I understand. Uh, which it's become. So, um, when I started thinking it through and having had a child, um, and I'm always looking for waves, I started seeing that in my own life, because I was in LA and other people's lives, that, um, Home delivery on a lot of different levels was becoming a very um, ordinary part of life, which I thought would stay for a while, whether it be ordering pizza to come in, whether it be ordering um, Spago meal, whether it be ordering uh, tacos from your favorite taco place. Yeah. It was sort of becoming a way of life. Yeah. Um, brands were really important. Brands became very important to differentiate what you were ordering. Like my favorite dumpling place, which is in Century City from Taiwan, when I was in LA, was delivering. And they had a beautiful presentation. And I got so, I probably ordered it 12 times because I could never get into the restaurant. Century wow. City, it's a four hour wait. Yeah. Um, uh, Wolfgang started doing fried chicken on Tuesdays. I went to pick up the fried chicken and the car line was two hours long. Jesus. <laughs> uh, Daniel Ballou started doing bouillabaisse. He was selling higher grosses of takeout bouillabaisse and he was doing it at Danielle's when it was open. Sure. So I started to see that, that this was something both myself and other people were becoming comfortable with, which A, gives them a highway to make some money, B, a highway to touch their audience. but more importantly, um, I've spent my life in the culinary world. Um, I go to board meetings, or I go to um, beer dinners, or I go to eat. And the chefs that I go with, like I'm on a board with Michael Meaner and Charlie Palmer and Thomas Keller, we all fly first class. And then at the airport, there's all these private planes. And it's one guy who's at Burger King, and it's one guy who's at Wendy's, and it's one guy who's at Olives. Yeah. I'm not real name. And I think this is an opportunity for, those, for people like Charlie, like Wolfgang, to really create generational wealth. Right. Because they can open, Wolf can open Spagos in 40 cities through ghost kitchens or other mechanisms of what it would cost them to open one restaurant in LA. Yeah. Wow. That's so true. You know, Michael Meaner, I know is developing some brands. Um, uh, I don't, but 
that are just Michael Mina brands. Yep. They can compete with the Domino's or compete with the Burger King. But when you go online to look for, a, I'm going to have a hamburger tonight. If you see a Michael Mina's burger that can be in your house in 20 minutes, then I see uh, Gold Bellies is starting now to ship Danielle's food, Marcus Samuelson food. And from what I understand, Danny Myers opened up a ghost kitchen to produce the food for those chefs for Gold Bellies. I was there the other night and I actually got a Gramercy Tavern. Uh, I, I was at Gramercy Tavern the other night for dinner for the first time uh, since COVID. And about two weeks ago, I got the famous Gramercy Tavern burger delivered. It wasn't as good. Of course, it's not because it's always like downtown and, you know, he's midtown. Right. Um, but what I, was really interesting is I was just thinking now, you had a great relationship with Charlie Trotter, right? And and I just interviewed uh, Adam Block, whose show is going to come out next year. And Adam was is a friend of mine, and he owns the print lounge and the press kitchen, uh, pre- press lounge and the print restaurant in Hell's Kitchen. There's a beautiful roof uh, rooftop um, um, bar. Now we went into this funny story because Adam was responsible for putting about twelve to fifteen hundred deals together across America, and he'd put the Time Warner deal together with Keller, and he'd been partners with you know a whole bunch of chefs. And he brought up Charlie Trotter because. They were friends, and he put a deal together in Las Vegas for Trotter, right? And do you remember, because of the Australian, do you remember the story? So the Australian billionaire magnate, Kerry Packer, this is the most ironic thing I've ever heard, was a whale playing at the casino. What casino um, did Trotter have his first restaurant? Uh, MGM. MGM. So the story he told me the other day is Kerry Packer, who's very well known in Australia and I used to look after, Goes to this casino, empties out their vault, basically, goes across the road, loses it all, and on the way out says, they said, when are we going to see you again? He goes, the next time you have a decent bloody restaurant. Typical Australian, right? So they panic and know he's coming back in six months and want to get their earnings back. So they ring Adam, and Adam thinks, this is the great way for Charlie Trotter to get into the casino. And they... So, of course, he rings Charlie. Charlie doesn't sound that excited. He's kind of, Adam's kind of trying to do the same thing. I'm, dude, I'm trying to make you money. Charlie builds this incredible restaurant. Adam said, they, they, you know, didn't spare a cent. They're rushing to get the restaurant built. They've got 24-hour workers, union workers on site to have this restaurant built for when Kerry Packer comes back so they can get his money back and he can stay there for a couple of weeks. And so they build this restaurant. And I know his history of food, Kerry Packer. And they build this restaurant. Kerry finally comes there. He loses a ton of money, so they get their money. He walks into the restaurant, has one appetizer, and leaves. And, <laughs> and he goes across the road to some steakhouse. And the ir- irony of this is one of the world's greatest chefs who's now passed, and I used to love his, his um, books as well, Kitchen Sessions. And I mean, he's doing plant-forward food then, which now is like trendy. He was doing stuff there that was groundbreaking, you know, making – ravioli out of radishes and all kinds of stuff. But the irony of this whole story was we took one of the most the, the most horrible palates I've ever met was Kerry Packer who passed. He would come into my restaurant. He would yell at the waiter before anything happened and said, I want a fucking blue steak. Now make sure it's blue or I'm going to send it back. I want fries and I want Fanta. And the waiter would say, we don't have Fanta. And he's like, I told Robert he's got to get Fanta. All right, Coke. And so here's a guy with a palate that loves Burger King. It's a blue steak with fries and Coke. And the one of the world's best chefs is the reason why he got a restaurant. You know what I mean? The irony in that. Is that you the reason they shut him down, he didn't last long. Um, Mark Miller had opened um, 
Coyote Cafe. Mm-hmm. That, Wolfgang did a Spago in, a, in the casino. It wasn't a restaurant. It was just an open little area. Yeah. And then they danced with Mark Miller and Mark Miller works. And then they brought Charlie in for Packer. And they put Charlie in a hallway. It was a, a room. It was an old closet room that they readjusted. Yep. But what they did do is they put an amazing wine cellar in. Yep. And Charlie did a set menu. It was a five or six course menu. Yep. And um, the first four or five weeks, every every single person in the restaurant was a casino comp. Yep. And um, the ticket average was over $1,000. Wow. Because of the wines they drank. Sure. So after about, I would say the restaurant couldn't have been open more than three months. Wow. They came to Charlie and they said, listen, you got to serve. Um, people got to be able to order. You can't do six. We need people out of this restaurant in under 45 minutes. You cannot give them a six course meal. Let them order one or two things and go. Sure. Charlie wouldn't do it. So they closed them down. It's incredible because he was a fiery chef, but it, it very well respected. And I mean, I was in my teens when I was reading his books again, no internet. And I remember the kitchen sessions and trotters. And I remember his book was incredible. I was so inspired um, that I can't remember the name of it. But and then he did a he did a supermarket and some branding and, and right all that kind of stuff. Door, yeah, yeah. And you'd, always you- walk, you'd walk in the kitchen and there'd always be a, like a nuclear scientist or a biophysicist working. Yep. <laughs> and, and wasn't wasn't he the um, wasn't he incredible? Because he was like one of the first people to put um, a kitchen table in the kitchen. Yeah, in those. That that, yeah. I think the first was the Dorchester, Anton yep. Mama. Yeah, right. He That's put, very he true. Put an elevator in and a kitchen table. And I remember telling Charlie about the kitchen table. And next thing, there was a kitchen table. Yeah. And I mean, you know, the funny thing was, was that I came from a pretty wild kitchen. And I used to laugh at myself thinking if there was a kitchen table in here, we'd probably have to treat it like the Blues Brothers and surround it in chicken wire because it was so – fry pans were going everywhere. Everybody was screaming. I can't imagine why anybody would think that's fun. But how did you meet Charlie Trotter? Uh, through Emerald. Ah, right. I mean, I, he was at that first meeting, but I didn't meet any of the guys at that first meeting. And then when I, when I became close with Emerald, him and Charlie were really close. Yeah. Do, do you think most, now – I represented I never met yeah really yeah because there were like a hundred of them and I was very honest with everybody and you know I'm going to build a highway you all can go down the highway but I I just I can't deal with each of you I'd have to have 20 people in my office yeah and nobody was making any money so a lot of them I never met do you do you think now I mean it's really a this is an answer I think we probably all know but sometimes a celebrity chef is great to get that first hit in the restaurant, but it seems like sometimes it can be a bit of a curse as well. So, you know, I opened, I opened a restaurant a couple of years ago in Perth, Australia called Santini and for this group that I work with. And we won within, we won best restaurant and we've won state best restaurant for the last three years, which is great. The first six weeks of opening, we had over 35 review reviewers in and out of our restaurant. The first week of opening, we had a bunch of them. We had one night, I was in. The, I was standing on the pass because it was an open kitchen, and I'm like sending out the food, and it's crazy. There are three reviewers on three different tables reviewing the restaurant in one night. 
because it was a bit of a big deal and da da da. And I made sure when I came to New York, I'm not a big name here. I'm, you know, maybe a big fish, small pond in Australia. The other way around here, I'm small fish. And I was super paranoid about that. And I, I wonder if having a celebrity profile is actually sometimes a bit of a curse as well as a benefit because of the pressure that it unnecessarily puts on you so early on. I don't know. You know, it's um, the one thing I know is that no restaurant's ever a sure bet. Uh, that I know. Yeah, absolutely. They all just seem to have some kind of a rhythm. So you do the best you can do. You try and, you know, open as economically as you can. I think um, what my experience has shown me that winning or losing 90% of the time is in your rent deal. That's so true. Uh, so, so that, and most young up and coming chefs don't focus unless they have a, a really wise partner. They don't focus on that rent deal. Sure. They get, they get a little cocky. I'm going to do big business. And yeah. Isn't it funny though? Is it's kind of a rule of thumb, isn't it? The chefs that know how to cook really well can't add, and the chefs that know how to add really well can't cook. <laughs> you know, they're different art forms. That's why part. Of course. You know, I mean, I, I wonder now during COVID, you think the people that are pivoting. So, for example, when Wolfgang Puck's doing fried chicken on a Tuesday, he's smart enough to go that travels really well because obviously some things don't, right? Like his. That's a really important part of it. Right. I was in LA for six weeks having the baby because you have to, you can't fly the last four or five weeks. Yep. So I tried everybody, you know, and, um, I mean, the things that I found, I would say the first and foremost thing that I is really lacking, if I was back in business, I, I wouldn't stand for, is that nobody is thinking about making their customer happy. You, the doorbell rings, and it's always a bag. And then you open the bag, and it's always some boxes. Yeah. Open the boxes and you eat it. Yeah. How about anything? How about like putting a cookie in saying thank you? Yeah. How about four napkins that are colorful? Yeah. How about um, a, a little piece of paper that'll let you download music to go with your dinner? Yeah. Just something that says you give a shit about this person. It's it's so true because Jason and I, my business partner here, and I have uh, recently acquired a tavern in the Upper West Side. Um, you know, because now's the time to cut a deal, right? And we're going to probably launch at the end of the year. We're doing a kind of a spaghetti western tavern with live music, and you know, spaghetti cooked alla cartoccio in the paper bag and so forth. And one of the takeaway items is called uh, an Italian date night that we put together, which is basically for the poor loser kid that's going on a date and can't really cook. And I, the idea we had was a Chianti bottle with a candle a checkered table, gingham tablecloth, and a whole bunch of stuff in there, and he gets, he or she gets to order it. And also for people that aren't single, but the idea was to basically romance someone with a partially cooked meal and then it looks like you could finish it. I agree with you. Because yeah, make, it, make it an experience like we did in our restaurants. Yeah. Don't just shut it off. It's, it's not, and it's not really an economic issue. It's a caring issue. Um, you know, get a candle. Yeah. So whatever it happened, whatever that thing happens to be. So I think um, that was one of the takeaways that I had that was really strong. Second one was how exciting it was. 
Yeah, wow. To have some of that food show up in my place. Like yeah. the dump place, it was perfect. They had it in, in an aluminum container, which really kept the heat. Um, and they had a little, I saw the guy when he came up to my door, he had a little heater. Yeah. I ate it fast. Um, a couple of the noodle things I had were really good. I got taken one time by, that's what made me think about like a Michael Mina pizza or a, uh, an emerald fried chicken was, I went online for pizza and I wanted to find the best pizza. Yeah. I said, let me see who's delivering the best pizza. And that was my first counter with Ghost Kitchen because the best reviews were for a company called Ghost Kitchen Pizza. Really? Yeah. So I ordered the Ghost Kitchen Pizza. And? All these great reviews. And it was a horrible pizza. Yeah. But obviously they knew how to play the, the game. Yep. Had to load in the reviews. Um, and the ghost kitchen has been floating around. I heard about it. I didn't ever knew if it was. Then I started exploring what it actually was. Right. Um, and I, so I said to myself, what about if that was like, you know, Wolfgang Puck's pizza? Or what, what if that was, you know, Celestino Drago's pizza? Or, or you know, that would have gotten me to order it. Yeah. I mean, it's, it, it, it's really interesting because the pivot that people have to adjust to is a Naples style pizza doesn't travel well. It's always going to come cold. It's always going to be soggy. Whereas a New York style pizza, exactly. And they always taste better. And and so it's really fascinating because I want the hospitality people that listen to this show to have some knowledge from this and be able to build on how they're going to pivot out of this, this uh, COVID period, which I think is going to be around for a couple of years. If you if you were in the restaurant business right now, I'd, I'd probably tell you off anyway because you shouldn't be. None, none of us should be. I don't know why. I'm still in it. I'm thinking an exciting time. It is. Be, I, I, I've done this Australian show. Uh, sorry, I recorded this Australian show, which you'll appreciate, and, it's, and we're going to call it something like Idiot Australians in New York, but it's all my buddies that have got restaurants and they're Australian and they've opened in New York. One of them opened the middle of COVID outside. He was allowed to. So he went, oh, screw it. I'm going to open. And he's killed it. And, you know- and I think it's nutty because no matter how many times we'll go broke or close or shut things down, there wasn't one person in the hospitality industry that said they wanted to get out. They just said, of course, I'm not going to get out. What else am I going to do? You know, it, it, it's, it's kind of like when De Niro was asked uh, a while back about uh, what, else we, what else is he passionate about? And he looked at the cameraman in his cold De Niro kind of grumpy fashion and said, what else am I going to do? You know, so I was kind of like, so now with uh, the last thing I wanted to ask you, you're very spiritual, you know, uh, from not, from, organized, but not what, sorry, not organized spiritual. Well, I, I don't consider myself a Buddhist or no, I'm Jewish by birth and culture. And, uh, I, I, Find my my feelings are very close to everything I know about Buddhism, but I'm not a practicing anything. But you, your temperament, and your energy, and your calmness. Can you give some advice to how you be? I mean, you can't have just been born like that. I think you know it's really. I've always reduced it down to being thankful and physically saying thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you a lot of times a day, like actually saying it. Yep. Great. I just um, I just watched an interview with Oprah Winfrey, 
and they asked her what her secret to her success is. And she said, when I wake up in the morning before I get out of bed, I say, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. And I repeat it during the day. And I'm just really thankful. It's actually pretty amazing advice, particularly for the well, a lot of the world. And, you know, hospitality right now is going through a really weird time in their lives because we've, we've been, I, don't, I wouldn't say the word spoiled, but we've never had a time in our life where if you've got enough talent, you can always get a job. Um, you know, that's always been the hospitality. Well, I'll just go wash dishes if it all goes bad, you know, but now it's not even the case. And, um, you know, I'm wondering some of the benefits of, of, of learning from you about the way you live your life, the way you believe how people should be treated, Roger Verger being a big influence. Although I want to say I'm not so sure he would have been too happy about putting his food in a box and sending it in a delivery app. I think he'd be turning over in his grave, right? There's no way of putting veg. You know what I mean? Like, you know, there's a different era. I don't but- know. I, I think he would find it exciting. Really? Yeah, because I think, you know, I think at the core of it is making someone happy. Yeah. And I think if he can find a way during, especially during these depressing times, to bring a little smile and a little joy by opening up, you know, your doorbell rings and yep. it pops up that makes you happy. But isn't that why you cook? I mean, like you cooked last night for dinner, Yeah, right? Exactly why you cook. And I think that's really interesting now because you viewed it in a great way of saying, well, I think it's very exciting as well because we've got to now change the way we think because our sensory experiences were, well, my staff will give them great service and the energy of – Julie, the waitress, or Tom, the barman, or whatever it is. Now, all of a sudden, you're right. It's in a bag. How do you take that experience, put it in a bag, and deliver it? Maybe not in a bag. Maybe in a basket, or maybe something. Yeah. Um, I think you know my 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 heart goes out, and my, and my I go through real periods of of um, frustration when I think about the other parts, the dishwashers who don't really have a job in a food's home delivery. Yeah. Um, the, the front desk girls or yep. guys, um, the sommeliers, there's a whole world <coughs> where I think for the chefs themselves, they can find a pass through. Yeah. <coughs> really tough for the, uh, the infrastructure. I have no answers. Well, I mean, one of the things that we talked about the other day with a couple of hospitality people is learn a new skill. This is the time to hustle. Stay in the industry, but just learn a new skill, learn how to do operations or learn how to do design or whatever you have to do. But the thinking has to change. I don't think this is a – I don't. I think you'll probably tend to agree. We've had a, I had two of these incredible human beings that I love. They're, they're both veterans at Sparks Steakhouse behind the bar, and I had them on. And, and one of them is a silverhead fox, is in his 70s, and the other one is an Australian that's been here 25 years. And when I was interviewing them, uh, the Australian talked about, we had some dark you know, conversations about 9-11, and he said he lost his job as a barman. And I said, why? And he goes, well, because the bar was gone. And, you know, It was downtown. And I was like, right. And he, I go, what did you do? And he said, I just went to the 9-11 site and worked there for three months on, 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 the, on yeah. helping, volunteering. And then- you know, I talked to Mike, which is this goes back to you, is I talked to Mike and I said, um, and I'm going to ask you the same question because this is my last question, but what would you tell your 20-year-old self? And and before I asked that question, at the very beginning, I said to Mike, every time I've walked into Sparks, I've, I honestly don't go there for Sparks. I go there for you. And I really mean that. Half the time I'm eating lamb chops and fish in a steakhouse. And I always sit at the bar 
and the uh, the Ukrainian manager always yells at me because I never go into his dining room because he calls it his dining room and Mike's bar. But Mike's always happy, and the bar can be ten deep, and he'll scream out Robbie, and he'll like push people out of the way, sit here, done, and you know I feel like oh he's the reason I got into hospitality, right? And he said to me, I'm just a happy person. I'm just always happy because I just I'm grateful, right? Which is what you're saying. So at the very end of the interview, which we'll we'll, share, we'll it's going to be out in a few weeks, uh, I said to him, "What would you tell your 20 year old self?" And he started in finance and ended up in restaurants. And he said, "I would tell my 20 year old self, stay in finance, you'll make more money." And I looked at him and I said, "But you can't say that because you're incredibly happy. How do you know if with more money you would have been happier?" And he said, and he goes, "I'll take that back." I would just tell my 20-year-old self, go for it. You know, like, you, you know what I mean? Like, even in hospitality, he's not getting paid. He, he dabbles in the stock market. His restaurant is shut. You know, he's got a wife and kids and whatever. And he still hangs on to the idea that hospitality is what makes him happy. Uh, I love Sparks, by the way. One of my, one of my I have uh, four adopted children. One of them I caught drinking out of a wine glass when she was 15. We were in New York at the, uh, I think we were staying at um, right off 59th Street. Yep. And I said, you, you want us to drink wine? I said, come on, we're going to go drink wine. And I took it to Sparks. Who was it? Uh, this is about 15 years ago. Which, which, which daughter? Uh, Amber. Oh, yeah, I met Amber. Remember I had dinner with her. Yeah, she's a great. I took Amber to Sparks. Yeah. But at a bottle from the birth of her year, her year birth of, from Bordeaux, I don't know which, I think it was Lynch Bodge, maybe. Of course. Her and I drank the whole bottle and she got so sick. <laughs> <laughs> That's such an Italian thing to do because there's such this American anti-drinking, right? And the first time I got drunk, my dad, I came home and I think I drank two, you know, when alcoholic ciders were a thing and I was like 14 or 13 and I was throwing up. And he looked at me and he goes, are you done? And I go, he goes, I go, yep. And he goes, you okay? And I went, yep. And he goes, well, you've learned your lesson, haven't you? And he just walked off. He didn't tell me off. He was like, he was like, you idiot. You shouldn't have drunk that much. And then for, forever on, you know, he would always try and as a kid, try and give you a little bit of cognac or, cause I used, he used to, I never realized this and maybe he did it to shut me up, but he used to give me these uh, little bottle chocolate bottles. And I'd think they're disgusting. And he would always go, no, no, it's good for you. And it was full of alcohol right and you're like nine or ten so i've got a healthy relationship with alcohol so i'm okay with it i think most of the time but um i want to thank you uh so so very much i am very grateful i was um buzzing today on coffee and trying to calm myself down because it's exciting to have you on i really would love to have you on again and talk post-covid um if you were to shout out to someone right now in the industry that is your first love as a chef or a restaurateur who would it be oh there's so many the first person who come, comes to your mind. In Hawaii, um, Dean Emerald, Mark Tarbell in Phoenix, um, one of my favorites. He sends me meatballs. <laughs> now, on that note, what would you tell your 20-year-old self? What I would tell my 20-year-old self is um, at some point you're going to die. Enjoy the moments in between. Yeah, I think you have, right? So I'm not worried about that. Oh, thanks for being on the show. Uh, you're an absolute legend. Congratulations again. Uh, uh, very exciting. 
hopefully we'll be able to get a chance to click together again. Amazing. Thanks. That's it for this week, peeps. If you're enjoying the show, just go to iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or whatever podcast player you listen to, and ideally give us five-star rating, if we deserve it, of course. It will help other people like you discover us. If you want to find out more on what we get up to or to suggest someone we should interview, let us know. You can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube at The Raw Hospitality Show. The show is a Fabrica Collective production produced by Mark Fellows and Samantha Webb, music by Jindal.